Amen. Carrie, we need you to teach on worship every week, I think, before we sing. It's a blessing to be together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Greetings to those of you who are with us this morning, especially those who may be new and visiting. We welcome you to our fellowship, and we're glad you're here. And to those who are watching at home, we greet you as well. And we're glad that you're able to participate with us, even if in a limited sense and from a distance. Uh, But we wish for God to receive all the glory today. And so we want to continue now our worship by opening God's word and opening our hearts to receive from his spirit what he would have for us. I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads with me and pray again, this time asking for God's help and for the work of his spirit as we engage with his word. Father, we come before you with that prayer we just sang in our hearts and on our lips that you would be our vision, that you would be our Lord, the ruler over all, that we would not seek after man's praise or worldly riches, earthly things that pass away. Christ, be all to us today and unite our heart to fear your name. We pray now that you would be at work in us through me, through your word, and that you would bring about uh, your desired outcome in hearts today. Bring change to people's lives, to families, and to this church so that you might receive all the glory. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your exalted name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the 17th chapter of Exodus. We have a couple history teachers in our church, and we have several other history buffs who probably know this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway and remind the rest of you. In 1814, Francis Scott Key was aboard the HMS Minden, and he was carrying letters. Uh, He had been commissioned by President James Madison. The War of 1812 was underway, and he was carrying letters that had to do with the exchange of prisoners between the United States Army and the British Army, or Navy, rather, uh, U.S. forces and British forces. And while he was there in the, uh, the, the bay, the harbor in Baltimore, All through the night, he witnessed uh, British naval ships bombarding Fort McHenry, and he was watching. It was dark. It was hard to tell who was winning, but as the sun rose on that battered fort, Key was inspired by the sight of the stars and the stripes still flying the next morning, signaling that the American forces had not fallen. The next day, he penned a poem on the back of an envelope, and he titled it, Real romantic title. It was The the Defense of Fort um, McHenry. Real fancy title. But later, his poem was paired with a popular tune and published under a new title, which is probably what you know the song by. It's The Star-Spangled Banner. You know the lyrics. It's familiar. We we hear it, um, you know, sporting events, things like that. And you know the lyrics. The rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Now, flags can be meaningful things. People look to a flag, and that flag instantly communicates something. It communicates values. It communicates identity. A flag can communicate a nation's history and a nation's ambitions. A flag can also evoke feelings of pride and loyalty and admiration in those who see the flag. That's what it did for Francis Scott Key on that day. Flags can also evoke feelings of hatred, feelings of anger, feelings of fear. Think about what it would have meant for 
perhaps Jews living in Poland to see the Nazi flag flying, or what it means today for those in the Middle East to see the black flag of the, of the Islamic State. Flags carry meaning, and they carry special meaning on the battlefield. They serve as a rallying point for the troops, and whichever flag is flying at the end of the day signals the winner. So flags matter. Banners matter. As the nation Israel journeyed from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that they've been learning some important lessons about their God, specifically about God's faithfulness, that he always provides for their needs. We've seen that he gives them food when they are hungry. He provides water from the rock and from bitter springs. He makes them fresh. God provides in miraculous and gracious ways for his people. But there's another lesson that Israel needs to learn. And it's going to be yet another opportunity for God to teach these people what it means to rely on him. Israel's going to face now its first military conflict since they left Egypt. And it won't be their last military conflict. And in this battle, they're going to experience God's power again. But this time, it won't just be God working for them on their behalf. It will be God working through them providing for them the power that they need to win the victory. And following this victory, Moses will build an altar, and he will name it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. It's a very simple point this morning, if you're an outline person. God's presence with his people supplies strength for the battle. His presence with his people supplies them with strength, strength for the battle, strength to win the victory. I'd like to walk through this story with you this morning and focus on that central truth that it teaches us. In verse 8, the crisis arises as the people experience a savage attack. Exodus 17, verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Amalek, who are these people? Who are the Amalekites? It's important we understand this because the Amalekites are not just some random nomadic tribe out here in the wilderness in the Negev. Remember, if you know your Old Testament history, there was a man named Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And although Esau was the older, the firstborn, Esau was not the recipient of God's promise. God's covenant with Abraham would be continued through Jacob, the secondborn. Jacob later would have his name changed to Israel, and Jacob would father 12 sons who'd become the head of 12 tribes. But Esau, the rival brother of Jacob, Esau also had numerous descendants, just like his twin. And Amalek was Esau's grandson, the son of his oldest son, Eliphaz. And this means that the Amalekites, these people who attack Israel here in the desert, they are distant cousins of the Israelites. And when you start to understand this, it paints this ambush, this attack, in a totally different light. You have to wonder, did these people know about God's promise to Abraham? Because if so, then they should have known that Israel was not a threat to take their land. The Israelites were passing through. God had promised them not the Negev, not this place in the wilderness near Rephidim. He had promised them the land of Canaan. They should have known also that God promised to bless Israel and to bless all the nations through them. They should have seen Israel not as a threat, but as a source of blessing. 
They also should have known God's promise that he would bless those who blessed them, but also the flip side of that coin, that those who dishonored the descendants of Israel, that God would curse them. So why did Amalek attack Israel? I don't know. Perhaps they perceived them as a threat, thought maybe they would use up valuable resources. Water and grazing can be hard to come by. Perhaps there's still some bad blood here, remnants of an ancient sibling rivalry and a deep hatred for these people. Perhaps it's nothing more than naked opportunism, a chance to make a quick profit because Israel was vulnerable. They were traveling with women and children and they did not have any sort of trained, organized military. They would have had very little in terms of military equipment. So if you're looking to make a quick profit, they would have been easy pickings. So while we don't fully know their motives, we do know their background, and we also do know their tactics. In fact, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19, tells us that Amalek fought dirty. Deuteronomy 25, 17 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. What the Amalekites did was actually come up behind the children of Israel and they targeted the elderly. They targeted the sick and the lame that had a hard time keeping up. Those who were weak, children. This is brutal. They targeted the vulnerable. This is not an honorable battle. There is no just cause for this war. It's an act that is predatory and cruel And it actually brings an immediate threat to the survival of the nation, which means this is a serious crisis. Not only are their lives at stake, but God's covenant purposes are now in jeopardy. These people have been in danger before. They've faced already the slow, creeping death of hunger and thirst in the wilderness. But now they're facing a much swifter threat, the edge of the sword. So what's God going to do this time? We should be filled with anticipation because we've seen God turn the salt water to be fresh. We've seen God provide bread from heaven and quail in the wilderness. We've seen Moses strike the rock and water gushes forth. So what's God going to do now? The savage attack of Amalek is met with a swift response. Verses 9 through 13, it says, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Moses did, or Joshua did, as Moses told him. We'll stop right there. We're introduced right here to someone who's going to become a key figure for the nation Israel, a man named Joshua. We find out later that he is, he's Moses' right-hand man, his protege, and he will be the new general for Israel's emergency army. And one day when Moses died, Joshua would become Moses' successor. And he would lead God's people, not just through the wilderness, but into the promised land. And the timing of this introduction to Joshua is really perfect because Joshua's name has meaning. The Lord saves. Yeshua. This name is a theological declaration. And it hints at what God intends to do for Israel in this battle through the the leadership of Joshua and the army that he was to raise. But this name also hints at what God intends to do one day for mankind through the offspring of this nation, the seed 
the son of David. The Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua is rendered in the Greek language as Jesus. And it means the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. So Moses calls upon Joshua and he tells him, gather an army. And he says, you have one day to do it. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. One day. One day, Joshua, to go and scramble out there, find anyone who is of fighting age and is in good health, arm them as best as you can, get them together as best as you can, and go out to meet the enemy. There's no time for training. And these people, you have to understand, these people have zero experience. They have never known war. If you remember, back when they first left Egypt, God led them on a specific path that was less than efficient because he wanted to avoid the Philistines. Exodus 13 tells us, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They had no idea what they were doing on the battlefield. No experience, no stomach for it. But now they're across the Red Sea. Now they are deep into the wilderness and it's too late to turn back. They are under attack and they have no choice except to fight. Not only are these people inexperienced, they likely had very few weapons. I mean, they definitely wouldn't have been armed by their Egyptian neighbors as they left. The Egyptians saw them as a potential military threat. So the only weapons they likely would have had are those they could have acquired in trading with nomads. A sword here, you know, a spear there. Or perhaps they had maybe some primitive weapons that they could have built with their own hands in the wilderness. They likely had nothing that could compare with an experienced and battle-hardened army, the Amalekites. So Joshua gathers an army together, but from a human perspective, the odds don't look very good. They don't have time to train. They don't have time to get organized. They have zero experience, and they're ill-equipped. The odds are not good, and that's exactly how God likes things. The odds are not good from a human perspective, but that will pose no challenge for the Lord who is their banner, the God who saves, as Joshua's name says. So not only is Joshua to gather an army, that's only half of what's going to happen the next day. Moses is going to do his part by going up on the hill, and he will take with him the staff of God in his hand. Now remember that this staff is what signified to the people God's presence and God's power. It symbolized God's authority. This is the same staff that Moses had used to strike the Nile River, turning it to blood as an act of God's judgment. This is the same staff that Moses had stretched out over the Red Sea and God had parted the waters. This is the same staff with which Moses had struck the rock and water had burst forth into a river in the desert. So Moses goes up on the hill with the staff, full of anticipation that God's going to do something. He's going to do something. And this was supposed to be their hope. Their hope was not to be in their military might. Their hope was not to be in their experience or their equipment. Their hope was to be God's powerful presence with them. Moses says, I will go up on the hill and I'm going to take the staff of God in my hand. Moses is accompanied, according to verse 10, by his brother Aaron and a man named Hur. It says Joshua did as Moses told him. So he gathers the people together and goes out to fight with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And then notice what verse 11 tells us. 
Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13 tells us, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. We aren't exactly sure who this man Hur is. We know Aaron is Moses' brother. Some traditions hold that Hur was Moses' brother-in-law. He was the, perhaps the husband of Miriam, his sister. We also meet other men named Hur in the Old Testament. There's a Hur from the tribe of Judah, whose grandson was a skilled craftsman who helped build the tabernacle. Um, but the bottom line is that these two men, regardless of their, their backstory, they end up playing an important role because verse 11 tells us that as long as the staff is raised, Israel prevails. This ill-equipped, untrained army is conquering and defeating their attackers. It's an amazing thing. But when Moses' arms get tired and he lowers the staff, that symbol of God's presence, that symbol of God's power and authority, it tells us that Amalek starts to make progress. They start to gain ground. They began to get the upper hand. So Aaron and her are standing there, and they're observant. They see what's going on, so they solve it. They get a, a rock for him to sit on, and they hold up his arms for him. And Amalek is handed a stunning defeat. Verse 13 says they are overwhelmed with the sword. So what's going on here with the, the arms raised and the staff and, and all of this? Well, the symbolism is important. Again, this staff signifies God's power, presence, and authority. And here's the thing. That is what the battle depends on. Is God with us? If so, then we can win. Does God have authority over the nations to rule and judge? If so, then we can win. Is God's power greater than the power of our enemies? If so, then we can win. And that is what the staff Signified because God is what the victory depends on. The Lord is their salvation. Under natural circumstances, Israel is no match for Amalek. And you see that every time the staff is lowered, the natural order of things starts to take place. But in the strength that God provides, Israel becomes invincible. Amalek may be superior to Israel, but God is superior to the Amalekites. These people had sung once before on the shores of the Red Sea. If you remember what happened, as they see the bodies of the Egyptian army washing up on the shores, they had sung, God is a warrior. And now God is answering this question, is God going to keep being a warrior? Is he a warrior only at the Red Sea, or will he be a warrior in the wilderness? Will he be a warrior in the land of Canaan? I think they have their answer. God has proven himself once again to be greater than yet another army. And it won't be the last time that God gives them this kind of surprising and unexpected victory from the world's perspective. And so you wonder, why is God doing it this way, though? Why does he do the whole thing with the staff, raising and lowering? He didn't need to do that or use that. But you have to understand, God is teaching them. He's teaching them. It's an object lesson. It's showing them that their military victory is not due to their own strength. The battle is won not because of the sword in Joshua's hand, but because of the staff in Moses' hand. And the staff is raised not as a symbol of Moses' strength. Moses gets tired. 
He needs to sit down. He needs help to hold his arms up. No, the staff is a symbol of God's strength. The battle belongs to the Lord. And as Joshua's name declares, the Lord saves. It's his powerful presence with his people that guarantees their victory. But God is also teaching them something else. He's teaching them something about what it means to obey. Now consider that this isn't the first military threat that they faced. It's not the first army that came after them. That already happened at Egypt, at the Red Sea. But when the army of Egypt came after them, what was Israel's part in all of that? Really nothing. They were told simply to stand back and watch. Moses said to the people, Exodus 14, 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you, see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You see, when it was Israel against Egypt, God said, stand back, just be quiet, and watch this. God didn't need their help. He did it all. He did it all in his own power. And he did it in specific means, by telling Moses to raise the staff. And that's all that happened. And the entire Egyptian army was destroyed. Exodus 17, that's where we're at. That's happened to me before. You know, the app that like starts playing the audio. So again, God doesn't need their help. But, but, God uses means. God uses means to accomplish his purposes in the world. He had previously used nature. In the plagues, you know, we see God's control over nature. Things like locusts and the sun and sickness and disease and flies and frogs God had also used supernatural means. He had sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn. God had just created bread and sent it down out of heaven for them, produced water from the rock. That's supernatural. But sometimes God uses normal human means. And he wants our faith and obedience. He wants us to offer ourselves to him as instruments that he might use to accomplish his will in the world. So yes, God is going to deliver this people, but they have a part to play this time. They are to pick up their sword and fight. The victory is guaranteed by the Lord in his strength, but they are to be his instruments. They must fight the battle, but it's going to be fought with the strength that God provides. And this is a crucial lesson to learn, both for them and for us. We are often commanded to do things that seem impossible, but we don't have the option to sit back and do nothing. We must trust God enough to obey him. Faith requires that we step out in obedience and do the things that God commands, trusting that he will empower us to succeed. What that meant for Joshua was, hey, go gather up the guys and go out to fight. Do it. Obey. But God is the one who brings about the victory. The swift response by Joshua and Moses as they go out the next day to face the enemy it ends in a total victory for Israel, and the threat is completely neutralized. And the people learn a valuable lesson about God's presence with them and the power that he supplies and what it looks like to simply trust him and obey. So there's a savage attack, a swift response. Verse 14 tells us about a sober judgment that is rendered upon Amalek, the enemy. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, So the battle's over. But the story's not. The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it 
in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Write this down, Moses. Write it down for Joshua. You see, God has big plans for this man. He's referred to as a young man. He's probably 40. But this man, Joshua, has a future. God has plans for him, but God also has plans for the Amalekites. They had tried to wipe Israel out. You know how the psalm says that those who dig the pit fall into it? That the enemies of God will be ensnared by the trap that they prepare? They had tried to wipe Israel out, and the Lord is now going to turn this back on their own heads. And they're going to get a taste of their own medicine. Israel is going to wipe out the Amalekites. And this is God's justice on display. The destruction of the Amalekites has long troubled those who are suspicious of God's justice. How could God command Israel to wipe out a whole people group? Some would even dare to use the word genocide to describe what a holy and almighty and perfect God commanded. We need some perspective. God is not overreacting in issuing this oracle of judgment against the Amalekites. This wasn't a cause of God having a knee-jerk response to a one-time mistake that, that some people made. Really, Scripture portrays the Amalekites as a people group who were corrupt through and through. This isn't a one-time mistake, crossing the wrong person, the wrong people. No, this is who they were. In fact, this would not be the last time they attack Israel. It would happen again in Israel's wanderings in the wilderness at Hormah. We see this in Numbers 14. The Amalekites attack again. In Judges chapter 3, we find Amalek allying himself with neighboring nations so that they can together come and oppress Israel. They thought, well, we couldn't beat them by ourselves. Let's go get some friends and try again. In the book of Esther, we're told of a man named Haman, a genocidal dignitary who nearly succeeded in a plot to completely annihilate the Jews. So while they weren't originally on the list of nations that was destined for destruction, those referred to as the Amorites, whose iniquity was not yet complete back in Genesis 15, Amalek wasn't originally on that list, but they just got added to it. Joshua would fight against them. Saul and David would later finish the job. The heinousness of their crime is owing in part to their heritage. Remember, these people are descendants of Abraham, but they despised the promise. They did not worship God or honor him. They made themselves enemies of God's holy purposes. And God has every right to pronounce judgment on them. And he has every right to use whatever means he chooses to render that judgment. And in this case, he's going to use Israel as his instrument. But we even have to look deeper than just what's going on with Israel and Amalek. Because this is about more than just the Amalekites. This is actually about satanic opposition to the redemptive plan of God. If Amalek succeeds... If they destroy Israel, then what Joshua's name points to, that the Lord saves, that there is a Messiah coming, that hope is never realized. Amalek has become the devil's attack dog, trying to put a stop to God's redemptive purposes in the world. His purpose is to magnify his glory by redeeming lost sinners like you and me. And God sees fit to shoot this dog and to put it down. 
to wipe them out because of their wickedness and their cruel participation in Satan's designs. So this is not just a judgment on Amalek. This is a blow that is being struck in the ancient war between the serpent and the seed, something that started all the way back in Genesis. And as such, this judgment on Amalek is a foreshadowing of a future judgment where Satan will raise up human armies to rebel against the seed, against the king, against the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the one who will come in power to save and to judge. On that day, Jesus will finish it once and for all. Human armies will be destroyed and wiped out, and Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire forever, all of it to the praise of God's perfect and holy justice. Friends, God is faithful. He is faithful to save, and he is also faithful to judge. His covenant promise to Israel was that he would bless those who bless them, and those who dishonor them, he would curse. And God follows through. It's a sober judgment. But even this is not the end of our story, of our passage. Verses 15 through 16, it ends with worship, a symbolic worship. It says in verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses builds an altar. And this is not an altar for atoning for sin. There won't be sin sacrifices that are slaughtered here. No, this is an altar for offering thanksgiving to the Lord. This is an altar to express, express their gratitude and their devotion to him, their loyalty to their God. Following in the tradition of Jacob, their ancestor, Moses names this, this altar to commemorate the event that took place there. The Lord is my banner. And listen, Israel, this is something that God is to be worshipped for and to be praised for, and this is something that must be remembered. Joshua, remember this. When you lead the armies of Israel into the land of Canaan in conquest, the Lord is our banner. Here they experienced that reality, and it was something that needs to result in worship and remembrance. You know, we began this sermon with a reference to the star-spangled banner, the place that a flag has on the battlefield. The banner in previous times, the flag, meant even more than it probably does today for our current military. You know, our current military forces and other forces around the world, they have many different means of communication. We're not sending smoke signals and waving flags typically, you know, to communicate with, you know, on the battlefield. We have radios and things like that. But the place of a flag on a more ancient battlefield, it was really their form of communication technology. They didn't have radio codes, things like that. So the banner would be lifted high on the battlefield, and it was a rallying point for the troops. And it was also used to signal to them what they needed to do. And so here in this case, Moses names this altar, the Lord is my banner, because the staff of God had been raised over this battle. The men fighting would have looked up during the day, and they would have seen silhouetted against the sky the outstretched arm of Moses holding the staff of God, that staff that signified God's presence and his power. And that sight sent a message, keep fighting, God is with us, press on, God is able to give us the power to succeed. Although Amalek is stronger than us, God is stronger than them, and he is here. 
The strength of God was on their side. That's what the staff meant. And the strength of God would ensure the victory. So Moses says, the Lord is my banner, our signal pole, the flag. And Moses knows that this is the true reason for their victory. The next phrase that we see here is a little difficult to interpret. Verse 16, it says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. There's kind of two different ways you can take this. This could be referring to Moses, that Moses is holding the staff. So this is his hand touching, as it were, the very authority and power of God holding the staff. And if that's the case, then this is a declaration of confidence that we are on the Lord's side. We have his strength. And it's also a call to loyalty to pick which side you're going to be on. A statement of worship that really draws a line in the sand and says, as Joshua will say many years later, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this could be referring to Moses' hand touching the staff, as it were, touching the very throne of God, a celebration of God's power and authority being for them and, and his expression of devotion to the Lord. I'm with you, God. I'm on your side, and I'm so thankful you're on ours. But the other way you could take this phrase is actually referring to Amalek, a throne upon the hand of the Lord, as in a hand of rebellion pushing back against the rule and the purposes and the power of God himself. And as such, this statement is a warning. You put your hand on the throne of God like that, and here's what happens. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And if that's what's meant here, then this functions very similarly to the, the song we find in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 concludes, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. There's only one way the story ends when you rebel against God. It ends in judgment. And this is part of their worship. So whether you take this as Moses' um, expression of, of gratitude and devotion to God, whether you take this as a denouncement of rebelling against him, either way, Really, the takeaway is the same. Do you want to be for the Lord or do you want to be against him? Will you be loyal to him and trust in him and depend on him or will you take a different path? So the scene ends really with worship, with an altar and a name. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. God's presence with his people supplies strength for the battle. Israel learned a valuable lesson that day, that the Lord saves. And it matters not whether it's hunger or thirst or an attacking enemy. The Lord is with us and he saves. He is faithful to his covenant promise. And we look to him as our banner. We look to him as our identity and our security. We rally to him and we devote ourselves to his purposes, trusting that we are on the right side. This lesson will be essential for these people as they enter the promised land. They have many battles ahead. And it also, I think, this is just a side note, but it would have also helped to solidify Moses' status as their leader. If you remember, right before this, they wanted to stone Moses because they didn't have water, once again, in the wilderness. But now it's Moses' hands, not theirs, and it's his staff, not their swords, that turned the course of the battle. So maybe they'll rethink how valuable it is to have Moses as their leader So I think God's sort of helping Moses out here as well. So that's the lesson for them, but what's the lesson for us? It's very simply this. There's going to be battles. We are in a war. We're in a spiritual war. 
We're not in a war for our salvation. We're rather in a battle for sanctification and the preservation and advancement of the gospel. I love Spurgeon's comment on this story. He says, The children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men. And so we are not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace off our necks. And now we have to fight, not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Moses never said the children of Israel to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go fight with Pharaoh. Not at all. It is God's work to bring us out of Egypt and make us his people. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it is God's work to help us, we must be active in our cause. Now that we are alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. Spurgeon connects this text in Exodus to Ephesians chapter 6. That we're in a war. And we're not wrestling against flesh and blood enemies. Against weapons and technology of this world. It's a spiritual battle. The battle for salvation to save us, that is God's battle. He alone has the power to rescue and redeem us. He, as it were, brings us out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And all we have to do is stand back and watch to trust him and receive his grace. But now, after that great act of deliverance and salvation, we are a people who are on our way to the promised land. And the battles along the way are battles that we are called to participate in, that we are to fight. We are not merely spectators, but we do not fight alone. We do not fight in our own strength. We fight in the power of God. We say with Moses, the Lord is my banner. And it is his presence, his power, that will enable us to succeed. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a lot of Christians who want to right now wrestle against flesh and blood. But listen, your guns and your muscle, your money, your connections... They're useless in the fight that God calls us to. We fight a fight for faith in the face of despair. We are in a battle to endure despite suffering. We are engaged in a war for truth in a world of falsehood. We're fighting a battle to remain united in Christ even though there's division regarding politics and vaccines, and masks, and any other number of things, and who knows what's going to be tomorrow. This is a battle. It is a fight. It is a life and death issue. We fight a battle to to fight against our own flesh and the temptations of sin and self. The battle we are engaged in is a battle to maintain purity of doctrine in a world that is full of false teaching, a world that is full of dangerous ideas and godless ideologies that want to creep in and weaken and destroy the church. The battle we fight is a fight to maintain a heart of pure worship, despite the fact that, as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We fight a battle against the fear of man in our hearts. It's a fight to find satisfaction in Jesus and to love him supremely above all else. That is the battle you fight in, and there are forces marshaled against you that want to see the absolute opposite thing happen. And it's a war. And you must not be passive in this fight. 
And the good news is, though we are called to this battle, though we have responsibility to fight, God is with us. We do not fight this in our own strength. We do not fight it alone. He is with you. His power, just like for Israel, today is his power is bestowed upon the weak. It is given to the needy who look to him in faith. Victory depends not simply on you and me gritting our teeth and buckling down and trying harder. No, the victory depends on whether or not we will lean on the power of God, the God who is with us, the Lord who is our banner. Let me ask you this morning, where is your confidence? Where is your hope as we fight the kind of battle that I just described? What is it that you are looking to? With what or with whom do you identify? To what are you committed? What's your flag? May it be Christ. Look to him. We look to Christ and we look to his cross where he was lifted up for us. The cross is a symbol to us of God's power. Power over sin, power over death, power over the enemy whom he put to open shame by triumphing over him at the cross. The cross is the symbol to us of God's presence with us. The Son of God became a man, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to dwell among us and he now dwells with us by his Spirit. The cross is the symbol to us of God's promise that we who believe are saved, redeemed, free from sin, and made new. It is our hope that we will not be rejected by our God. We will not face condemnation because we who are in Christ are reconciled with God through the work of the cross. Moses exclaimed, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the sovereign Lord, the Lord who, who rules over and judges the nations. And you and I are invited in the New Testament to draw near to this very throne. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you weak? Do you need strength for the battle? Are there days where it feels like the enemy's gaining ground and we're losing it? Draw near to Christ, to his throne, to find grace and mercy and help in time of need. Don't turn to your own wisdom for this battle. Don't look to your own strength. Look to the cross. See Jesus Christ. Draw near to him and hope in his promise. Draw upon the strength that he provides for the battles you face. And then say with Moses, the Lord is my banner. Father in heaven, we, we are amazed to think that you would choose to use us as instruments in your hand. That you would choose to bestow strength and power on we who are so weak. Lord, as we consider the battle that lies before us, we consider the opposition we consider the lies, the errors, the false teaching, our own sins, our proneness to be discouraged and to despair. Lord, the battle seems impossible from a human perspective. And we know those are exactly the odds you like because it's in our weakness that your power is made perfect. Lord, help us to focus on the battle at hand, to recognize what it is that is our part in this fight. I pray that we would fight the right battles 
for the right reasons, in the right way. In humble faith and obedience to you, willing to do our part, even when it seems impossible, trusting that you will empower us and that you will accomplish your will through us. Lord, we thank you that our salvation does not hinge upon our strength. It does not hinge upon our faithfulness. You are the one who saves us. It is all of grace. But Lord, as we seek to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as we seek to run the race with endurance, as we seek to fight the good fight of faith, Lord, give us strength that we need and bring about your purposes in us and through us for your glory. Amen.